0: Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common, agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, your humble host, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. And it is a beautiful day today, thank God. And it is uh, 42 degrees. Just looked at the thermometer and sunny. And the snow is about 99% melted. In the shady areas, there's still snow, but um, it's really getting there. And I believe that tomorrow is officially the first day of spring. And I think many people throughout the country will be very, very happy to receive that change of season. And I also just want to, I think I would be... Remiss if I did not mention the terrible suffering that is happening out in Nebraska, Iowa, and the Dakotas, but I think predominantly in Nebraska, but it makes no difference. And uh, the terrible flooding that's there, and the hardship, and the uh, loss of life, and the loss of, of animals and livestock, and my prayers just go out to everyone there. And even though I personally cannot get there to help anyone, just like a lot of you can't, But, you know, prayer is a powerful thing, and the Lord will use his people in the best way that they can be effective, and what we need to do if we cannot physically be there but to lift those people and those animals up in prayer, and just to see those poor cows in that water, and it must be so cold, it's just, and in other parts of the country I've seen videos and pictures of farmers uh, going out into the field with a shovel just having a small hole in the snow where the cows breathing melted it and seeing that and digging a a poor cow out of that. So it's just horrific. It is just horrific. But uh, the Lord is good and uh, we will survive. They will survive, thank God. And they will be made stronger from it. So please do not forget to keep them in your prayers, which I know that you have not. But listen, I'm going to have a little bit of a different show today, and I just want to, you know, I say that often that I'm having a little bit of a different show because I'm trying to really, really educate my audience, and I'm so thankful for those that do listen. And we have listeners from around the world, actually, but predominantly in the United States and Canada, from probably from about 15 different countries that I am aware of, not counting the United States and Canada. But I feel that it is my duty to educate you and to hopefully you apply that education to uh, make your operation in agriculture, no matter what it is, more profitable. But today I'm going to touch on a hot topic. And what I mean by a hot topic, there's a lot of chatter about it that comes up, uh, comes up every once in a while, and the impetus actually for today's show was a tweet that I sent out. And as if you know before, that I'm not really a big tweeter, and I still get it like wrong half, probably 60 or 70% of the time. I'm supposed to put like that hashtag or something in there, but uh, I don't know, well, whatever. Thank God I'm a better, better engine guy than I am a tweeter. But anyway, I had tweeted out something about autonomous tractors. And it got a lot of feedback instantly, and I guess they call it a thread, and it went on for quite a bit about autonomy. And I kind of offered a different opinion on autonomy than most people that responded to my tweet. And that really was the catalyst, the impetus for this show today. So it's not going to be about anything mechanical. It's not going to be about any procedure. It's not going to be any theory, but it's going to be my, and I'm saying this right up front so for full full disclosure is that this is my opinion on autonomy and it is, uh, but it will be rooted in facts and it will be rooted in experience, not experience with autonomous vehicles but experience in the industry and within the engineering community and the automotive world. So I ask you to please bear me out through this talk, regardless of what your opinion is on autonomous tractors, and uh, listen to me and I will try to, uh, I will not try, I will bring facts with every one of my statements and then you could decide what you feel about it and we can, and that's it, that's what America's about, right? That you could decide your feelings and I could have mine, but as an engineer I like to remove feelings, as an engineer you have to remove feelings and emotions from things. A designer that designs the body of a vehicle or a tractor or the interior, that's a place for emotion. But with engineering, you have to remove emotion and it has to be just hardcore facts. When it comes to autonomy, I am. this discussion today is going to be strictly on autonomous tractors slash autonomous farm machinery i'm not going to get into anything about autonomous cars because that is um, extremely difficult and complex much more complex than autonomous farm equipment and uh, the first thing we would need to do is to have proper autonomy on the farm before we could actually have any vehicles cars or trucks on the road so in so many ways, the autonomous movement that is being represented in agriculture is actually the proving ground to autonomous vehicles. And if we can't get it to work on a farm, you're sure, certainly not going to get it to work on I-80 going through Nebraska, or uh, I-95 going up the Florida coast or County Two Lane Road. So... Let me put the so um, let me establish that, and the second thing that I want to establish in the beginning of the show today, is that, oftentimes the discussions from autonomy become mudd- muddied, they become mixed together, they become brackish like salt water and fresh water together, and I really think that there is there are two distinct discussions when it comes to autonomous farm equipment. And they need to be the engineering aspect of it and the practical aspect of it. Now, if you were to talk to an engineer, and rightfully so, because uh, that's his mindset and that's what drives technology, is that he will tell you that, that autonomous tractors are... Not possible do exist, and obviously they do exist. Case IH has one, uh, that Canadian company, I think they call it DOT, D O T. I forgot what it stands for. They have an autonomous piece of equipment going out in the field, and those are the things that come to mind, but I know there's many, many more. There's actually a couple of farmers playing with autonomy uh, that I heard of but we we'll, we could use those two and we'll probably use the Case Tractor. I'll call it R2D2, all right? And this is, you know, because they've uh, come so far with that and have the engineering prowess of the whole Case IH group to put into that. So there's two discussions, as I said. As far as the engineering of an autonomous tractor, is that possible? Yes. So this show today is not going to go back and say that it's not possible because that would not be truthful. It is possible they do exist. Now do I feel that it's practical and a practical application for agriculture? And I'll tell you right now that I say no. So the thing is that do not confuse those two discussions, because if you speak to someone about autonomy, they're going to say, well, we could do this, and we could do this, we could put a servo here, we could put a we have GPS, we have all these other things, they go through this whole laundry list of things, and yes, that is real, but is it a practical application for agriculture, and I'm not saying as far as I'm removing from that practicality equation, Excuse me. I'm moving from that practi- removing from that practicality equation uh, that it, it for that you would need to have a quite large farm with pretty straight fields and rectangular or square fields and what have you. And I'm removing the cost factor from it, and I'm removing all of that. All right. So when I say it's practical, and I'm I'm saying that it's not practical. My whole basis is going to be rooted in the extreme complication that you would need for an autonomous tractor. All right, so that's where we're going to go. And then I'm going to branch off as the show continues on into some different areas. Now, keep in mind that autonomy has been used in many large factories for years, and the first auto plant I ever went to—I was a young boy—was in 1978 in Belvedere, Illinois, where they made the Chrysler, uh, the Dodge Omni, and the Plymouth Horizon. And they had a, uh, a self—I think they called it a self-guided vehicle—that looked almost like an airport uh, little uh, a little tractor that that moves the luggage and everything around, pulls the trailer, I think they call it tractor tug, I think they call it tractor tug, and uh, they had those in the plants, and the way they worked it, there was a magnetic strip on the concrete, and this tractor tug followed this magnetic strip, and it was, uh, it was able to stop at every workstation, and then the people could unload whatever parts they needed and this tractor tug would go around. So that was autonomous and that was in 1978 but it was like a trolley. Instead of having a wire overhead it was following this magnetic strip and it would have a flashing light and it would keep beeping a horn as, as it went by so that uh, some, if anybody stepped in its path that, it would, uh, that they would know that it's coming. All right? So that's autonomy in its simplest, most simplistic forms form, I should say. But what needs to be recognized is that for uh, for autonomy to work on a, in a farm field, that the controller that controls this tractor, uh, the ECU, the logic, whatever term you want to use it, the brain for this R, R2D2 tractor, I'll call it R2D2 as I said, needs to be able to blend, a uh, blending of thought slash logic, recognition and applied mechanics. So let's stop and look at that for a second. The controller for this autonomous tractor needs to be able to have a thought process that is very near to being human and it needs that thought process slash some sort of logic within that computer that management system to be able to make decisions and these decisions so you could say well that's easy because we already have that we have auto steer in a tractor we have auto steer in a combine going off a satellite and gps mapping so forget about it hot rod we already got that no you don't because those are not autonomous they have just like when you go on an airliner the pilot hits autopilot but he is there watching everything so auto steer and that whole self-driving with hu- is with human intervention as an overseer, as a, as a guide to that and as a sentry to watch what's happening. A true autonomous tractor has nobody in it and that's why Case even when they made their version they displayed it without a cab because they wanted to give the visual of a truly being autonomous not having the public view it as confused with a, a higher end of auto steer. So what will have to happen is that this logic, this thought process, and then it it needs a recognition. It needs to be to recognize what is happening around it, what's going on, all right? And then it needs to be able to control the mechanics to apply all of this because regardless of the computer logic there still needs to be a mechanical function to be for that tractor to be able to go through the field to turn the wheels to to, to turn the pto on and off the sprayer on or off what have you so there needs to be a lot of so the the software needs to talk to some sort of controls and the controls need to be able to work the machine and without that, we basically have nothing, because if we think back to just a second, a few seconds ago, when I said about the auto plant, that was like a trolley. It had a magnetic tape in the concrete, the, the uh, self-guided vehicle would follow that tape, and that was basically the end of it. There was nothing more. It just needed to start and stop, and it didn't even have brakes, if I recall. It would just shut the power off to the, to the electric motor, and then the thing would just stop immediately because there was no power to it right so we need to blend that we need to blend that logic that thought process that recognition now as an example of we'll say autonomy or robotics right now robotics are very common to you go look at any auto assembly plant anything that's high volume manufactured there's, there's a great deal of robotics in it. but robotics need cannot be confused with an autonomous tractor so now Let's look at a simple task. My wife Charlotte is a kindergarten teacher and as a kindergarten teacher she hopes that the students start the first day of school knowing how to tie their shoes. Some of them do and some of them do not. So one of her first tasks is to go over tying the the children to learn how to tie their shoes. So now you're an engineer Right, you're a farmer engineer, and now what you want to do is you want to come up with a robot, a machine, a device, whatever you want to call it, that will do this simplistic task of a kindergartner, uh, five or four or five, six year old kid, whatever they they start kindergarten at, to be able to tie their shoes. So, now what we're going to do is we're going to pit your engineering prowess your computer programming skills your mechanical skills to be able to execute this to to emulate a task that a kindergartner could do of tying their shoelaces with a bow now once you look at it that way i want you to uh i'm going to break away for a second and i'm saying this with the utmost of respect the thing is that until you've actually done calibrations and done this, and I'll get into my background in this in a minute or so, so you could feel that there's some value that I'm that I'm talking. i just talking, talking um, to hear myself talk. All right, is that you know if you talk to a non-farmer, they think it's so simple. You have the you have the winter off, right? You're a row crop guy. You got the winter off. You work for a couple of days out of the year. You throw some seed in the ground. Then you go back out, the seed comes you have then you have the next couple of months off and then you come back in the fall and then you know if you put a uh, hundred thousand 100,000 uh, seeds in a plot of land, you have 100,000 years of corn, and then you go through your harvest of corn, and then you bring it to the grain elevator, or whatever you do with it, and they give you a lot of money for it, and then you say, well, now it's Thanksgiving, and now it's Christmas, let's go away to the islands, and then we'll come back in the spring and do the same thing, all right? So they have this this approach that, has, that they formulated in their mind that has nothing at all to do with reality. And sadly, and that's why I said I'm saying this respectfully, a lot of people that think about the autonomous tractor and based upon what I've heard people say, what I've read in some publications, and also just recently, as I said, this, the feedback on Twitter, I, we could put a, they could put a sensor, they could do this, they could do this, they could do that and everything. Yeah, that's like the, the the person in the city saying it's so easy to be a farmer, you throw seed in the ground and you just got the bags of money afterwards when you're harvesting, all right? So let's, let's, get that, let's get that thought process rearranged because now your task is to basically make a robot, an autonomous, uh, autonomous machine, no human interaction, an autonomous machine that is going to tie a kindergartner's shoes. All right. Now, I'm not going to go on for an hour with this, but these are the few basic things that you have to think about. Well, where is the child putting their foot in relationship to the machine so you could say well that's no big deal because we could have an area where we tell them to to stand with the shoe okay fine you could do that alrighty but now we have to say well how much tolerance are we going to be able to accept if the person doesn't stand exactly exactly in that spot and what about a person that has one size shoe one width and a person that has a much larger foot and a much wider foot so if we have this spot we have to be able to encompass where they're going to stand and now we're going to have to determine what range and determine engineer you call resolution resolution to for them to stand so if they have a smaller foot we make the pad larger but then how does how does that determine it well okay well you could say well there's a sensor and we'll discuss that in a few minutes so the sensor is going to determine the size of where the foot is okay fine all right, so now we got that taken care of uh, in theory, right? We put the seed in the ground. We just wait for the money to come. Now the next step is where are the laces laying? I know when I put my work boots on every morning, I have to move the laces around because one lace is inside, one lace is underneath the sole, one lace is on top, the other lace is someplace else. So where are the laces laying for this t- shoe tying procedure? So then you could say to myself, all right, fine. Well, what we'll do is we'll just instruct the person that they have to put the laces in a certain area so that this R2-D2 robot can grab it. Alrighty, fine. But now... What are the, what is the diameter of the lace? I know some shoes have a have a thicker lace, some have a round lace, some have a more of a rectangular flat lace so we now have to write a program and have some sort of ability for this robot to be able to identify not only the size of the foot the shape of where the laces are laying on the shoe because it's untied so the laces are laying and now we have to determine the the shape of the lace next thing is we have to determine how many eyelets does the shoe have and if the shoe and not only how many eyelets but how many eyelets do not have a lace in them when I untie my boots right I only it has a hook on the top and I only untie two eyelets down and open up the tongue and put so I could take my foot in and out so now does this shoe have six eyelets and when the person takes it off and then puts it back on four eyelets are empty does it have four eyelets and two hooks on the top Alrighty. so now and the next thing is how tight does this person want those laces tied so I'm using this as a as a as an example of how this is not so simple and that's only tying a shoe so a simple task that a child can do becomes an engineering nightmare and the people who are are computer-oriented and software-oriented and uh, and work in that industry, God bless them, they have knowledge that I would never have but really if you were to look in their subconscious they think that they could replicate the human being that the sensory, all of the senses that the person has, the thought process and they think they could do with computer code and it's called to a certain extent and somebody may be listening to this that writes code but I'm gonna call it artificial intelligence because it's a level of artificial intelligence and we have to really look at and say that there is not a computer that can encompass the thought process and the the physical attributes of a human being yes they do it in Hollywood with a robot with a man inside there but in reality is once you see how hard it is to make a machine a autonomous machine to tie a kindergartner's shoelaces when my wife could teach a child to tie the shoelaces in a few minutes and with some repetition have that down pat. So now what gives me the... the I'm not going to say the authority because it's no authority but what gives me the background or the credentials is probably a better word for me to talk to you about this first of all i have never done any programming or worked with any autonomous vehicles or equipment whatsoever already but i have a background as an engine calibration engineer and i test drove for i had a contract with bmw of north america and i was an engine calibrate engine and driveline which is transmission torque converter and engine um, calibration evaluator so I would not write the code what I would basically do is I would evaluate the calibrations on pre-production cars and uh, as far as everything is concerned from idle quality startability uh, idle stability transmission shift points uh, the whole 9 yards because on a modern vehicle what you're basically doing is that you're integrating the engine with the rest of the driveline and that is what calibration is so that is a very simple yet challenging task because whenever you're going to calibrate something it becomes a juggling act. Now if you look at a juggler or you you you're taking a, a ball and you're, you you have to and you're juggling it up there you're throwing it and catching it throwing it and catching it right so you're juggling one ball now I say to you now come and juggle two balls well if you're a good juggler and you have some experience you'll probably be able to do that and now I come say juggle three balls, juggle four, juggle five, juggle six balls and then what happens is that maybe you get one or two rotations with them and then everything goes crashing on the floor well as a calibrator as a calibration engineer you are juggling probably a hundred balls at one time not just one or two and you're juggling a hundred balls at one time, and because those balls are not only the drivability of the vehicle, how the the smoothness of the vehicle, the engineering we call making it making it invisible to the consumer, to the driver, this, how the transmission shifts, how it goes into gear, uh, all of these different things, idle stability, uh, how the throttle input it feels, and plus you need to you need to. M- to meet fuel economy and emission standards. So now you're juggling arguably a hundred balls at the same time. And that's a simple calibration for you to get in your pickup truck or your wife to get in her car, her minivan, her SUV and start it on the farm and drive three miles, five miles, whatever to town. Or drive across the barnyard. Or drive to go see you in the field a mile or two away. There's so many things that have to go on, and with this integration of these engines and these drive lines today, that it's, it's, yes, it's a simple task. You could say, well, you know, I was able to do that years ago, or Henry Ford was able to do it with a Model A and a Model T prior to that. Yes, but it was completely different. Because it was not—it was a ball that was juggling—that needed the engine to start to be able to put power into the transmission. There was no emissions. There was no. There was no fuel economy standards. There was. it was no starter. You cranked it with a starter, or, or, or with a hand crank, or what have you. So once you get into that, you have to see that this juggling act. And as I said, the, the, it, the depth of the calibration to drive your pickup truck down to check your crops a mile away is nothing compared to trying to make an autonomous tractor. Alrighty? And make an autonomous tractor that will function day in and day out. Now when I was a test driver for BMW they were coming out with something called an SMG transmission which is sequential manual gear change and it was uh, it was a transmission that was going to come out in their performance car, and was the uh, called the M3 for somebody who's a uh, a car enthusiast. And I did uh, I did a good portion, probably a third of the test driving on the pre-production. Uh, I probably was more prototype than pre-production SMG transmission, uh, and we did that here in New Jersey, and in New York State, and in Manhattan, in New York City. All right, and. <coughs> In essence, what was determined by the industry, not just BMW, by the industry, is that after many, many hours of work, and when we got the product here, it already went through its early development stages in Europe and Germany, and then when it came here, it was... uh, Half baked for lack of better terms, but uh, you know the dough was already mixed and it was in the pan and the, the cake was already, the, the cake dough was already in the pan in the oven but it was half baked. But what the industry has de- is determined and what an SMG transmission is that was there was their trademark name was that it's a manual transmission. it's not an automatic transmission. it's a manual transmission that you shift without a clutch. And it had paddle shifters on the steering wheel, and it had a, a looked like a shifter, almost like a joystick. Uh, I don't think that version ever came into production, but I had like a joystick, and you would move it around to shift it. Now, the 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 drive away was pretty good, uh... wasn't great. It wasn't great because what happened was that it had no clutch pedal, but it had a cl- it had a clutch type of mechanism. It wasn't a true clutch like you would think but anyway we'll say a clutch type of mechanism to engage it uh, is that it was not able to feather the clutch out so we had to write a calibration that would read the input from the throttle position sensor because it was drive-by-wire, there was no throttle cable, throttle position sensor to try to determine how much RPM we needed to have to engage the clutch. And what happened with this particular type of transmission it was very jerky at low speeds because it did not have the ability to feather the clutch out. And it and also the algorithm, the mathematical calculation we needed to determine was based upon how much throttle angle versus how aggressive we're pressing the throttle but at that particular point the vehicle did not know what the road conditions were it didn't know if i was trying to go up a hill when i stopped at this or i was going down a hill or what have you and then eventually they tried to put a, a uh, inclinometer into it to try to calculate that but that was a whole nother nightmare because it's a whole nother uh, ball of wax so but what was determined was that the best we could get it, the upshifts were pretty good. If the drive away from a stop was bucky. It was, almost, it, would, it was almost like a person, if you pulled alongside someone and you drove away, tried to drive away gently from a traffic light, from a stop, the person next to you would say, boy, that guy's got a $100,000 car. He doesn't know how to drive it because that's how it looked. It looked like the, a person who doesn't know how to drive a stick shift. They would buck a little bit and then go. If you went away aggressively, it was much smoother because it saw that throttle angle and the RPM. And then once it got rolling, the shifts were pretty good when you shifted it. Uh, Like I said, you had to move the shift lever to shift it, but there was no engagement of a clutch. But what was really a problem was the downshifts. The downshifts were a real issue and the best we could get it when that project was over as far as my end was concerned is that approximately 60% of the downshifts were acceptable. They weren't great, they were acceptable, and 40% were very bad. So if you tried to go from 6th to 4th, or from 3rd to 2nd, or what have you, and you needed to match rev, there had to be an algorithm to match rev the RPMs, and then we actually had an algorithm there to blip the throttle on the downshift, which is actually kind of cool, but to blip the throttle to try to make the downshift gear engagement better to put inertia in the crankshaft. But anyway, 40% of them were bad. And the 60 percent, probably out of the 60 percent, half of them were only okay. Now, what was the industry has determined was that a good driver, a good driver would have 85 percent of their downshifts would be would be would be good, would be a proper downshift and would be smooth, and there would be a smooth. A smooth drop down in engines in um, in the gear change and the engagement of the clutch when the clutch comes out with the RPM and match rev and it would be a smooth downshift uh, close to akin to an automatic without that without without all of that uh, hydraulics. So a good driver, but it was also determined that an excellent driver, an excellent driver, would get 99% good downshifts, and the best we could make with 60%, and out of those 60%, probably, like I said, 30, half of them, 30% were really quite poor. So that's only a gear change from going from 5th gear to 3rd gear, or from 6th gear to 4th gear or whatever, that was only a gear change, or rolling up to a stop sign or to a stoplight and, and coming down in the gears, whereas in a normal application, an experienced driver would push the clutch in, kick it into neutral, and roll the, the last couple of feet. But to try to accomplish that, akin to like tying the kindergartner's shoes, is, you, it's, it's almost impossible to replicate the intelligence, thought process, and the synergistic effect that a human being has when they're operating a piece of machinery. So the other thing is that it could not anticipate gear changes in traffic whereas you driving a manual transmission would be able to anticipate say man that car up there is stopping i see the brake lights go on so i'm going to leave it in first gear all right so it 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 had a lot of a lot of issues and i don't want to belabor it but then we found also that the so- that the software was not able to to act properly with the mechanical functions and then we also saw that some of the the mechanical aspect that be it a servo or be it something else was too slow to respond to the commands all right now you could say well, what about an automatic transmission An automatic trans- fully automatic transmission is a little bit different because it has the torque converter all right and it's using hydraulic fluid and it's not and it has more and it has um, what we would call two or three degrees of freedom throttle angle input and mechanically it's much more forgiving because the torque converter will absorb a lot of that inefficiency or or, or that bad gear change so it makes it a lot easier to calibrate than a manual transmission but the SMG transmission we were trying to have a drive like an automatic with the shift uh, with the logic of a person who knows how to drive a manual transmission so now a lay person says, "Well, let's just put sensors all over the place," and they think that sensors are the, are the your cat's meow, the, uh, the the God sent to everything. A sensor is 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 uh, the answer, and to a certain extent, they are correct. I'm not going to say that. All right. Um, But a sensor is only going to be, a sensor does nothing more than, and I don't care whether it's on your planter, whether it's on your, your combine, whether it's on your pickup truck, whether it's uh, on your seed meter or on your, uh, your whatever, your sprayer. I'm trying to think of things and not repeat myself. But uh, all a sensor does, it it converts a physical condition to an electric condition electrical signal. That is it. So you have to be able to, so if you're trying to determine, let's say a coolant temperature sensor on an engine, there's a certain resistance that that sensor is made to to identify the coolant temperature. So let's say, and I'm making up arbitrary numbers here, let's say at 200 degrees coolant sen- coolant temperature the sensor is made to have a hundred ohms of resistance. At 190 degrees it may, ha- it may have um, a 205 ohms of resistance and that is what is called the resolution or the range of a sensor now when you look at like a gauge a mechanical analog gauge on your sprayer or a tire pressure gauge the resolution is the range, which same thing, it's the range that it could measure. So if you're looking at your sprayer and you have a gauge that goes from 0 to 60 pounds, then, then half point in its resolution, the midpoint, is 30 pounds. All right. Now, if you had a gauge that went from 0 to 1,000 pounds, you would not be able to read accurately 30 pounds because there's not enough resolution. And that's why we all have different tire pressure gauges because we'll have a tire pressure gauge that reads from 0 to 20 pounds pounds or zero to fifteen pounds and then we'll have one that reads from zero to hundred twenty pounds and what you want to do is have the most resolution so the sensor only converts a something whether it's a temperature a mechanical state engine rpm hydraulic pressure into an electrical signal because the control unit the microprocessor doesn't understand five hundred psi of hydraulic pressure but it understands a certain output on the sensor So But, once again, the sensor has to be designed to be able to have the proper range that we need to identify with, and it also needs to have enough resolution. But, the other thing is that once you send that data from that sensor, that that output voltage, or that resistance, or it could be a sine wave, or a square wave, what have you, it goes into that ECU, it has to do something with it so there has to be a control logic and lots of times it's mathematic based and called an algorithm and has to be a control logic that is going to be able to take that data from that sensor from that autonomous tractor and say okay fine right we have 72 ohms coming in and that's our um, that is our uh, pressure on the uh, the sprayer right 72 ohms is the pressure on the sprayer from this autonomous tractor and then but what does that mean to it there has to be a language written inside the processor for it to be able to identify to be able to see what that is and then that that data goes into a decision-making process which is basically going to say okay based upon based upon 72 ohms on the pressure sensor on the on the boom of this sprayer that we're pulling with this autonomous tractor and that we want 30 gallons per acre all right with this nozzle with this tip on it we need to go this fast so the thing basically is is that there's a lot of plotting i mean it looks like to try to, to get this to happen and then you have to put in set points or you have to put in um, points where it's like what is if we're going 5.2 miles per hour do we extrapolate that out to six or do we extrapolate keep it at five so it's very very complicated so a sensor you know a sensor is only going to give you a convert the mechanical condition to an electrical signal and for instance let's say the autonomous tractor is going down the field and there's a and there's a a, a I'm going to say a pothole. There's a hole in the field, a big groundhog hole. All right? You would see that in a tractor, and they say, yes, this could happen with auto steer, but if you're not playing with your phone and you're paying attention, you would see that. And... Well, there's some sort of obstacle in the field. So there's this big, huge groundhog hole, right? This big... What you would do is that you could basically kick the auto steer off or you could guide it around it because you'd be able to say, I'm going to just skim it. I'll move over six inches and I'll come back onto my path and I'm not going to put... Because um, I'm not going to put my row unit and have that drop down into that groundhog hole or my wheel from my sprayer drop down there and have that boom drop and hit the ground and bend, which happened to me last year. But anyway, so it needs to be able to see that hole, make a decision what to do with that hole, and be able to determine that, should I move over six inches, should I not move over, should I go straight, should I hit it, what have you. So you're getting the idea with this, is that, is that anything that you take for granted, akin to the kindergartner tying the, the shoes, has to be put into some sort of software to try to anticipate every condition that could possibly come up or if not every condition a lion's share of those conditions for this to be a viable technology and the software to do this is, ex- is because remember in it, in most softwares there could be a level of artificial intelligence where it makes a higher level of decision but the software the computer the control unit is nothing more than a comparator it's an information gatherer It says based upon this based upon this based upon this I'm gonna make this decision alright and that is what needs to happen but you make those decisions continuously continuously as you're operating the tractor in the field you're making those conditions and uh, let's say if you have it on auto steer and all of a sudden you say geez you know the sound of the engine the pitch changed right the pitch changed or uh, I felt a little buck there what's going on alright so to say well we're gonna have a sensor that reads RPM and reads load and reads this. yes you could do it back to my original thing engineering wise can you do it yes but is it practical and how complex is it to try to put these scenarios which you could never never emulate all of them into this computer code to try to and then have a sensor that has enough resolution that has that has enough range and the ECU software that's able to understand that. So that is keep in mind that that is just a comparator. It takes data in and it's going to make a decision based upon it. Now getting back to BMW to the M3 using that as an example. I'm only using this because it's very simplistic compared to trying to, all we're trying to do is get the engine to run right. We're not trying to drive it, okay? engine to run right, the transmission to shift right. It's not self-driving. So now, with the M3, what I noticed, because I'm a stickler for idle stability, is that when you got into traffic, and it started to, the idle started to roll. And it was very particular because you had to reach a certain temperature in the plenum it was an individual runner intake manifold with six throttle bodies but they tied it together with a with a plenum so that meant we had resonant pulses from the cam overlap coming back into the plenum all right and then at idle at idle in traffic but the, in, but the plenum temperature had to be elevated to a certain point. I don't remember what it was. At a certain amount of humidity in the air, that it would start to roll. And the idle would start to roll. It would start. Rrr, 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 like a diesel. Like a diesel with air in a line. Or when the fuel is gelled. Rrr, rrr, rrr. And then what you do is you would blip the throttle. And then it would stabilize, and then about 30 seconds later, it would start to roll. If it was 10 degrees cooler under the hood or had less humidity, it was fairly stable. But you had to get into a certain condition, and you had an idle instability. And then what would happen is that they used what's called degrees of freedom. I did a, a show on this a while back, which is adjustability. We were changing cam timing, idle air control uh, position, uh RPM fueling what have you all of this and the original math that we had in there was not right so the algorithm was not correct and at that particular point she would start to roll we were able to correct that by changing um by changing what they called the idle spark, which was the amount of timing and used duty cycling the timing in and out, but what had happened is that once we changed the idle spark, it started to fail the emissions test. So actually, it was cleaner when it was rolling, but you're not going to buy a hundred thousand dollar car and have your wife sit in traffic with it and it's surging 300 RPM. Rrr, rrr, rrr. That's unacceptable but but contrary to what you would think is that the emissions were actually cleaner when it was rolling than what we had to do to make it not roll and they actually had to play with the camshaft design to get this to not roll, right? So it's very, 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 very complicated. Now, with this basic, basic understanding of what it's like to get your engine to run, to drive to town with your pickup truck, all right? And all of the obstacles in the calibration there is. Now let's apply all of the things and changes that happen on the farm in the field that this tractor, this autonomous tractor or this autonomous sprayer will encounter without any human intervention all by itself. And as I said in the beginning, I'm going to repeat it again because I don't want you to lose sight of it. Can autonomous vehicles, do autonomous tractors exist? Most certainly. Can they do most things? Yes. All right. Is it 50%, 60% or 70%? I don't know the number. I'm not in an industry, but the fact of the matter is they cannot emulate a hundred percent of what a driver would have in that tractor even with the auto steer evoked. Now that's like basically saying well the airliner you know seventy percent of the time you know it lands fine and the other thirty percent of the time the wheels fall off and it crashes. That's the aspect of autonomy that I feel is almost that I'll, I'll say it is insurmountable because there's so many elements that need to come together and we cannot replace the human brain the experience and also the thought process and the sensors now you may think that I'm, I'm knocking computers and knocking computer controls I'm not Computers are wonderful. They're great for doing high-level math very quickly. They're great for repetitious tasks in a controlled environment. For instance, like a uh, a robot painting a, a vehicle in a car assembly plant or assembling some parts in a in a control in a controlled environment. But it is impossible for a engineer, and no matter how wonderful an engineer is, and if you have a calibration guy and he's calibrating this or trying to interface the electronics, controls, the, the math inside the ECU, the calibration software, the thought process, the artificial intelligence with the mechanical, with the with the basic mechanics that need to happen inside that tractor to make it do everything properly then uh he will admit to you that there's a long way to go and a lot of stumbling blocks and they will probably and they would say to you if they're honest, as good of an engineer I have, it'd be almost it would be so complicated and expensive and so many things to go wrong for me to make a robot that could tie a kindergartner's shoes, let alone an a autonomous tractor that can be put out into the field while you're sleeping and have nothing go wrong. Ready? So, now, let's say, even though that I feel that it is impossible, will they get closer to it? Yes, just like we got closer to the shift, the downshifts on the SMG transmission. We never got it to 100%, and I don't think they even offer that transmission anymore because it was uh, it was a, um, like I said, my contract, I worked with BMW for two years and they as a subcontract engineer, and then they moved all of the... Um, with 99% of the test driving to California from New Jersey and um, and that contract was up. But anyway, so the thing is that let's say that I am wrong and they could, they could anticipate all of these things like the human mind, which trust me they will not be able to. Alright? So, and they get it all right. So now let's consider the following simplistic things as we start to talk, go into this. So now we have this autonomous tractor you bought into it on your farm you think it's it's it's, i'm not saying you think it's it's great it's great right you could be out in the field it could be working 24 hours a day seven days a week you could get your your crops in when you want you could spray when you want there's uh you could do all of that there's no issues whatsoever you're an engineer we call it a great technology right it's a great technology but you know i'm saying that the execution is poor meaning that it that you really can't accomplish what you want. So let's say, they, I'm wrong, This, they get this all nailed in, right? They get this all nailed in. So now, this is the real-life aspect of it. The real-life aspect that, So they get it right, now consider this. This autonomous tractor is going through the field. It's got a diesel engine because it needs to torque. It, yes, it's lighter than a tractor with a cab and with air conditioning, what have you. And uh, But it still needs to torque to do the farm work. So it's got a diesel engine albeit a smaller one than you would need in a uh, in a row crop tractor but it has this diesel engine and you're going down the field and everything is wonderful you're putting your crop in. All righty? Now the a diode which is a one-way electrical check valve because an alternator on an engine uh, actually creates alternating current AC and a diode chops it to DC so the alternator is making AC and a diode starts to go bad inside it and it feeds it feeds into the control system non-rectified or unrectified is probably a better word unrectified AC well let me tell you something You could take a modern computer controlled gasoline engine, or a modern tier 4 diesel, and you start to feed it unrectified AC into that control logic from an alternator with a bad diode, and all bets are off how that thing is going to run, if it's even going to run at all. It could buck, it could stall, it could put a check engine light on, it could go into default, it could have no power. Alright, it could start the surge, it could overfuel, it could underfuel, because that would be akin to try to 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 determine every lightning strike in the country where it's gonna go, where it's gonna land. And electricity as we all know, is is very funny. It's a very it's 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 it has no rhyme or reason to it to itself it has a rhyme or reason but it doesn't divulge that to you and you could have two diodes you could have two alternators one with this one diode bad to a certain level another diode in that whole circuit fail to the same extent and the engine controller will respond two different ways alrighty so now let's talk about this scenario R2D tube, my autonomous tractor's going down the road, it's 5,000 acres away, everything is great, you look on your t- uh, cell phone, oh man, this is beautiful, look at this, uh, everything is planting the seeds and blah, 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 whatever it's doing, right, it starts to get, uh, a diode goes bad while it's running, which could happen, diode goes bad, unrectified AC. What happens to it now? So now the engineers say, we could put fail safes in, all right? But those fail safes get to be so complex. Think about how we couldn't get the transmission to downshift right at BMW, all right? Those fail safes get to be so complex to try to identify an unrectified AC signal in that part of the sine wave. And how it's going to interpret this, that's almost impossible. Like you standing there and say, man, I think that lightning is going to strike there. Yeah, well, if you're in the middle of Oklahoma in a thousand acre wheat field and you have a metal pole up there, there's a good chance that the lightning is going to strike there. But if you're in the forest in Pennsylvania, you can't tell where the lightning is going to strike. All right, if you're out in your cornfield, you can't tell where the lightning is going to strike. But it's going to strike someplace. So all of the people that are so... Uh, Pro-autonomy, which I am not against, pro-autonomy, I'm going to ask you that question. How is your system going to respond? And you, and if you're honest, you could say, I don't know how it's going to truly respond with a bad diode. And I could simulate a bad diode in the laboratory, but I can't simulate to how it's going to respond in the field. And that is why they do field testing on cars. That's why we were driving the cars on the road, because on the test track is a different story. Okay, next thing, alright, you put your autonomous tractor away for the winter, the spring comes, you come out, you, you get it running, whatever you have to do, you get into the field, however you get it there, I have no idea, alright, and now it starts to go. Well, during the course of the winter, a mouse made a big, nice, big, nice nest where you couldn't see, right where there's wiring, there's a ground wire there. Okay, a very important ground wire and the, the mice made this nice nest and they were very happy and they had their babies and they were all using that as a bathroom and they were taking a tinkle on it well that is very corrosive so now we have a high impedance ground so you start the, you start the, the autonomous tractor it goes out into the field at that particular point the ground is high impedance but it was still within the threshold of it accepting it and it's running and everything is fine now it heats up all right it heats up under there from from working it's now whatever chisel not well we don't chisel plow anymore right we uh we uh, uh we're uh, cultivating the field and now it's getting hotter underneath the hood wherever the ground may be and now that ground gets to a point where it's a threshold where it will no longer accept it how are you going to t- engineer how are you going to anticipate how that autonomous vehicle, that autonomous tractor is going to respond with a high impedance ground on a circuit. You cannot. You could, Then again you could simulate it, you could simulate it in the laboratory but it is not going to be the same because the conditions are not going to be the same in the field as into the, as into the laboratory. And now we have this whole tractor that's driving itself all right, Driving itself. So now you could say, well, I'm going to put a software of something in it that it's going to acknowledge it. Well, then again, it comes back to writing the code. At what level does it acknowledge it? What default strategy does it take? Does it go into like a limp home mode and pick up the planter and try to chug its way home? Or does it screw up, pardon my language, the whole autonomy thing and the thing takes off at 15 miles an hour and the dirt is flying all over the place, all righty? You cannot anticipate how that's going to happen. All right, and and if you did anticipate everything, this tract would cost about five, about twenty million dollars, like an airliner. Alrighty, because you have to take the human element out of it. All right, next thing. All right, autonomous tractor going across the field. It you you uh, it starts to spring a leak in the radiator. All right, spring a leak in the radiator. A human operator would say the temperature didn't go up, but it go <laughs> I smell antifreeze. I smell coolant, right? And let me let me stop and get off and see what happens. Oh man, I kicked up that deer antler and I punched a, punched a hole, and I punched a hole in the in the uh, one tube of the radiator, right? And it's leaking a little bit. So what you would do is you planting, you would you would pick up the planter and you you'd get the tractor back to the shop and you would fix it. Well, but the autonomous tractor can't smell, all right? So it's going to wait for the coolant temperature to see a rise in coolant temperature, and it could be what they say a Delta T, the change in temperature, all right? But if you have a slow leak in the radiator, and you're 5,000 acres away, all right, before this sensor is, before the engine is going to see an elevated coolant temperature, then it's too late at that particular point, all righty? So let's go through another thing. Alright, your, your autonomous tractor is going through the field, and then I'm a, in the other field with my auto steer tractor, and I'm going down the, f- going down, both are going down the field, and we both happen to run over a, uh, a corn stalk, and we start, and we put a hole, and we start that we pop a tire, not completely, we put a very fast, a fast, slow <laughs> leak, if that makes any sense, alright? Now... As a person in there, I could say, man, look at this. Look how the steering wheel is starting to correct in the auto steer. Look at the angle it has to go. Or I could feel, geez, it feels a little bit different. Or I could hear something, right? The autonomous tractor can't anticipate that. Yes, can it put a a wheel speed sensor on there? But then we have to have a wheel speed sensor that's going to recognize, have an algorithm to recognize at what particular point does it do something? All right? Does it stop the tractor or what have you? And, or does it do nothing whatsoever until a tire is completely flat, and now you're riding on a $3,000 tire on a rim, compacting your soil, ripping everything up, and if that sensor arguably skewed, which is as time goes on, that sensor skews, a sensor does skew, skew meaning its range goes out, then what happens then? right so those are very simplistic things and then again that is extremely complicated to almost impossible to mimic the human operation and try and try to engineer and prepare for all of these events and then I'm not even going to go into whatever happens if the, if the uh, GPS grid goes off or let's say hey your people are buying these planters with all this uh, 2020 seed sense and all these different great controls on it and downforce monitors so how does the autonomous tractor know that one of your 16 row units is basically not singulating properly so you could say well i can make a code for that and what have you and i'm going to close today and i'm going to say to you once again this is no disrespect to the engineers But what they're trying to do is make a machine that has the ability that the good Lord gave his creation. And it'd be impossible for them to make a machine that has the ability to reason, think, smell, see, and analyze in a split second like a mouse does running through your grain grain bin. When he sees you coming at him, or sees something, how he could respond, or a squirrel going across the road, or a fish in the, in a lake, or even even a a worm in the ground. So the thing is that. So is autonomy the answer? No. Is auto steer a higher level of auto steer? The answer. We probably, in my estimation, we hit our plateau with auto steer now will this technology advance yes it will and is it good yes it is and it will probably eventually end up with a, a higher level of auto steer but my thought and I hope I d- made a convincing argument is that I would rather see the companies put that engineering prowess and that money into instead, instead of an autonomous tractor in making advancements in engine design, fuel efficiency, emission reduction, transmission technology, and many other things that could give the farmer a real return on his investment. And also, I'm not even saying what's going to happen to this autonomous tractor 15 or 20 years from now with all of the are corroded, there's moisture in the connections, and what have you. And now all of the servos and solenoids don't respond as they do. So to me, It's a great technology. Is it a practical application for a farm tractor or a piece of farm equipment? No. Is there some midpoint, probably? Is it ever going to be on the road and be self-driving for cars and trucks? I doubt it very much. So I really think that your career behind the wheel of that beautiful tractor, listening to the Idle Chatter podcast, is very, very secure. And listen, there was no special delivery today. This whole show was brought to you by the good folks at Firestone Ag, and remember that they are the the lineage of a Harvey Firestone and the same mindset that Harvey Firestone had back many, many years ago. I think the company's a hundred something years old now, uh, is still alive today with their A D two technology and twenty three degree tread bar tire design and now with the replacement tracks, the firestone of, of replacement tracks. So I want to thank Firestone. I want to thank you for listening. Please give me your feedback at HotRodFarmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com if you agree with me, disagree with me, and know that the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher and my beloved America. You have a great week. Bye-bye.